Welcome back into the Lions 24-7 podcast. I am Tyler Donahue. You'll hear from a couple of our Lions 24-7 colleagues here on this episode. Daniel Gallen, Tyler Calvaruzzo, of course, behind the scenes, producer Lance Glenn getting the job done. As always, I am back from a trip to the Rocky Mountains. I uh, hope everyone enjoyed their 4th of July weekend and the festivities that followed. Um, we are now settled in midweek and the first full week of July. And We've got a lot to look forward to with recruiting. We've got a commitment to look back on because since our last episode, Penn State picked up a pledge from South Florida standout King Max. So let's jump right into it on that subject with Tyler Calvaruzzo. Um, I caught up on a lot of his work since getting back to Colorado. No surprise, he's been a busy man of late. Uh, on Mon- on Tuesday, I should say, you post- posted a story about targets to watch in July. We already have some confirmations about certain commitment dates. Others we're still waiting on, but a lot to build on with Penn State. Let's talk about their latest piece in this 2023 class. And it's another from St. Thomas Aquinas says King Mac made his announcement Thursday. Yeah, you know, just another example of Penn State really getting the job done in the South. You know, we've seen it with the Alabama commits to Car Nelson and TJ Parker. Now we're seeing it come to fruition with King Mac. You know, Penn State really pushed. It was a battle, man. Michigan State, you know, that last week of Mac's recruitment was really interesting. Both sides were healing a lot of good things. You know, I really feel up until the end, both Michigan State and Penn State felt good about their chances of receiving a commitment until Mac obviously popped to Penn State. Great job getting Mac on board, you know, Jawan Sider putting a lot of work with the St. Thomas Aquinas staff, you know, have him and having Conrad Hussey committed was big, you know, them being together on the official visit. Hussey was able to kind of sell that vision of what he sees at Penn State and how he could see Mac, you know, fitting in with him at Penn State. And that was all big for King, who is really excited to be part of the class. He loves the staff. He's been high on James Franklin for a really long time. He's had plenty of good things to say about him. He likes Manny Diaz a lot. You know, Diaz went down to see him in the spring, which is something that Mac really appreciated considering it was one of Diaz's first trips after he became, you know, during the spring. So yeah, Penn State put in a lot of work and it came to fruition with a commitment. It seems like he left campus with that feeling, still had that feeling in South Florida and, and Penn State was able to kind of weather the storm and what Michigan State was trying to accomplish. And we talk about weathering the storm, the Miami Hurricanes talked about this last episode. It was only about 10 days removed from him and Conrad Hussey may expected in Coral Gables and, and for that coaching staff to get a look at him. So I guess at the end of the day, are you a bit surprised that for King Mac, it did wrap up at this point, as we said, got to get to December in every circumstance, especially when you're talking about a long distance commitment and recruitment in Florida, but any surprise from you that Mac didn't just push pause and, and maybe recalibrate his commitment plans a little bit. No, I'm really not just because it seemed like it was always in the cards for him that he was going to be a summer commitment kind of guy. You know, he's he's kind of been saying that since the spring and there was never really anything to indicate that he was veering away from that line of thought. I do. Like you said, man, we talked about it on the last episode, Florida recruiting. It's always up until the early signing period. You got to get those signatures. There's always stuff going on there. So Penn State's going to have to stay on Mac. You know, they're going to have to go after him as hard as they've been going after him, maybe even harder now because I know Michigan State's not going to quit. They, you know, like, they felt good about Mac for a reason leading up to his commitment. You know, that, that's not a guy they're going to give up on. They feel like they could still have a chance with him. But, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not really surprised that he popped when he did just because it seemed like this was always his timeline from the decision from the start. So I don't really think that he experienced anything that moved the needle for him that said, hmm, maybe I need to take a step back and kind of recalibrate where I'm at in my recruitment. I think Penn State and Michigan State were the two he was zoned in for the longest, and he felt comfortable enough with one to make a decision on the original timeline. King Mac was a major climber in 24-7 sports rankings during the first quarter of 2022. Uh, Now climbed into the top 10 among safeties. He's number seven at that position. He's number 122 overall. This is a guy who was outside of the top 24-7 and considered a three-star, I believe, just a few months ago. So uh, what do you point to here for for a big reason for that uptick? A lot of that is attributed to him being, quite frankly, one of the fastest players in America when you're analyzing uh, the top football talent in the country. There's maybe there's faster guys out there, three-star talent, guys who are going to get looks in the in the fbs level but when you examine kind of the premier power five prospects and then match up the, those speed attributes there's a reason he was on the list just a few days ago when andrew ivans put together the fastest college football recruits in 2023 you look at some of his resume and we'll talk about him as a football player in a minute because i know you did a great analysis uh piece coming off this commitment but just for our listeners out there down in florida class 3a state champion and the 400 meter dash as a junior he anchored the four by 400 uh Four by 400 team that ended up winning back-to-back state championships as well. Uh, you talk about a guy who was the Sun Sentinel coach track and field athlete of the year. You always talk about the 100-meter and 200-meter dash times, and, and they stand up for Mac. But 400-meter dash, uh, you know, that's a, 
essentially the test for endurance when you kind of examine a runner. And, and when I look at Mac and you look at what he brings to the field, speed is at the top of that list. But there's a lot to love about a guy who made a major impact for a you know, state champion perennial to contender there with St. Thomas Aquinas. The, the bottom line is with Mac, those track times translate in about the biggest way possible, maybe more so than any other recruit in this class. I mean, you know, some people, they hear track times, and they think, oh, well, what happens when the pad goes on, the pads go on? And, you know, is he really that fast? Is he really going to make that much of an impact with his speed? I mean, if you just look at King Mac's tape and see what he does at St. Thomas Quench, where they have him playing primarily in a two-high safety look, I mean, this is a kid who could play one high and just – fly from sideline to sideline and make plays on the ball. His closing speed's ridiculous. His, his acceleration is off the charts. I, I mean, I see him break on balls where he's not even close, and he gets there by the time the pass is coming down in the receiver's hand. It, he's just – he's a burner, and it translates with the pads on, and that's such a big part of his ability to make plays and coverage. Now, that's not to take away from his natural coverage skills either. I mean, this is, he has good ball skills. He has really good instincts. I think that might be a little bit of an underrated part of Max game. He's able to read routes and make plays on the ball just by getting ahead of opposing quarterbacks. And, you know, at the end of the day, this just given the fact that Mac is a little bit on the smaller side, he might not necessarily stick at safety. I mean, we've talked about it plenty of this is, he might be one who winds up playing in the nickel when it's all said and done. But look, I mean, Manny Diaz went after Max so hard for a reason. You know, he sees a lot of different ways he could use this guy. You could use him in the one high look. You could use him in the nickel. He's not afraid to hit. So you don't have to worry about him down there and run support. He's a tough kid. So, yeah, th he's going to be plugged in a lot of different places. I think we're going to see him primarily in the nickel as his career progresses. But if they ever want to go one high and you can throw Mac over the top just with his coverage skills and his speed, he's a legit center fielder. He's a true center fielder in that regard. And and I love that you went that direction because I was just going to know Andrew Ivins let off his scouting yeah. report of King Mac by calling him the football the version of the five-tool center, center fielder. Yep. And you're right. You talk about all those attributes, the ability that they could scheme him up and get him in place to make plays, get the ball in his hands, look out, he could go the distance in a hurry. Uh, and, and I love that you pointed out that slot defender role potentially for him. I think one Hardy's done a very admirable role there for Penn State. We've seen what the defense looks like when that position is not short up versus when it is short up. Um, and Max, a guy who, who has certainly more size than Hardy. Hardy, one of the, the smaller defenders on this Penn State football roster right now, has really worked through that. But look at Mac right now with that speed, 5'11", 180-plus pounds right now in, in his development. Um, I'm glad you brought up that because there are a few landing spots here. And as we talked about with Dakari Nelson last week, labeled a top 24 seven safety, but we said, you know, is he a Sam in the future at six foot three and wherever he ends up weight wise uh, at 19, 20 years old, uh, look King max the headline here, but we got a lot to get to, um, you know, five commits in June, you know, along the way you lost an offensive lineman from this class, but all the guys you brought on board potentially will impact the defense. We talked about Yazid Haynes being that true athlete label right now, wide receiver defensive back in play with him. Uh, but 16 total pledges. It's a number five class nationally. And now that the busy 4th of July has gone past and no fireworks from Penn State, but it seems like they may have a few stockpiled as July continues. Yeah, definitely a good chance that Penn State still fattens up as July progresses and keeps adding on to what is already a pretty sizable class. You know, you got Tony Rojas coming up on the 14th. He was originally supposed to commit on the 5th. You know, a little bit of a logistics issue there. He had to push back. No reason for Penn State fans to really be concerned about Rojas in that regard. It wasn't a decision made based on any change in heart in his recruitment. Penn State's still in a really good spot there among his finalists. Got Tamir Robinson on the 15th. That's another guy Penn State feels really good about heading into that announcement, and there's reason to believe he's going to end up a nitty line. And then there, you know, there are the names out there like Trayon Webb and Evan Link, who we think are going to commit at some point in July. We get not 100% certain on some of those yet, but it seems like they're going to pop in July. Never know if things could change, but I'd bet on them committing in July. And we have crystal balls in for them to land at Penn State. I'm feeling pretty good about those picks with the way things stand right now. Yeah, you, you did a nice job on Tuesday with that rundown up on the site, uh, mentioning some of those guys, some of the others. Uh, let's start with the next announcement that's going to pop, uh, as far as we understand, and that's Thursday afternoon, 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time on CBS HQ. Cameron Selden, uh, who just was on campus in late June for a visit to Penn State, an elite-level athlete, top 50 overall prospect, a guy who Penn State pitched about having a, a multi-role uh, multi on offense. We've discussed his potential on defense as well. Um, and he's going to come off the board Thursday. Yep. Right now it's looking like Tennessee is in a pretty good spot to land Selden. I have a crystal ball in for the balls for them to pull that one out. But the big thing to note with Selden is I don't think his commitment is going to necessarily mark the end of his recruitment from a Penn State perspective. I think 
Penn State is still going to be interested in trying to get him back onto campus in the fall for maybe a game day visit. I know that was something that probably would have happened if Selden had uh, announced in October. There was a chance that he was going to announce on his birthday in October. That would have given him the chance to make it out to Penn State in September for a visit before that announcement. I think Penn State would still like to make that happen down the road. You know, there's obviously no guarantee once that once a kid commits, you don't know if he's going to 100% shut down. You don't know if he's going to stay open other options. So we still have to see where Sullivan goes with that. But I anticipate Penn State still staying involved with him, even if Tennessee's his pick tomorrow. He's drawn a lot of Power 5 coaching yeah. staffs to Northumberland High School there in Heathsville, Virginia. Tennessee right now is the team with crystal ball momentum on its side. And speaking of crystal ball momentum, the Ohio State Buckeyes right now have it for top 24-7 defensive lineman Jason Moore out of DeMatha Catholic. He's a guy who really made the rounds in June doing his research on four options. Ohio State was the last to host him. Penn State was the first to host him. In between that, Notre Dame, Michigan got him on campus. And now coming out of it, looks like the last to, to host uh, last to host more may be the ultimate destination next year. Yeah, I'm thinking about joining the Ohio State Crystal Ball Party for more. It just seems like right now he's trending towards the Buckeyes. They really just hit it out of the park with him on their official visit. I mean, that's really all it comes down to in this situation. Penn State put itself in a good spot. On their official visit, you know, it seemed like they were right there as Moore made these trips to Notre Dame and Michigan. Then he got to Ohio State, and the tide kind of turned in the Buckeyes' favor. And look, I mean, it's Ohio State. Penn State did what it had to do in this this recruitment. You know, it didn't necessarily do anything wrong. It's just a matter of this seems like Ohio State is where Moore wants to be. And in contrast to Selden, I think once Moore does commit, I just feel like that's going to be it for him, just given his personality. You know, he's he has approached his recruitment in a very business-like manner. So I think once he's on board somewhere, I'm not sure he's going to be interested in, you know, listening to other staffs once he's committed. So if it's going to be Ohio State, I think it's going to be Ohio State for him when it's all said and done come December. And we know that Moore has, you know, drawn a lot of attention, not just from yeah. Penn State staff, Notre Dame's, but, but the one thing that's been consistent for all these visits is you're not hearing much from him. Sure from his inner circle and that has stayed consistent really all the way down to the wire here. We'll see when an announcement is, it, it will come to fruition. But as you said, uh, things moving toward Columbus in that recruitment at this stage, uh, looking back South Osceola high school teammates, Jaquim Jackson and Derek LeBlanc were both up here in happy Valley during the month of June. Uh, each of them have Penn state on their shortened list and both of them now set to commit on July 28th. Yeah, Penn State made progress with both of those guys in their official visits. Pretty substantial progress with Jakeem Jackson from what I've been hearing. But I don't think it's going to be enough for Penn State to get either of them. Right now, I'm, I have a crystal ball in for Jackson to land at Florida. I think the Gators have a good chance to keep him in state. LeBlanc's an interesting one because I'd actually been hearing Florida for a little bit. But then Oklahoma started picking up a lot of steam. The Sooners seem like they're kind of in the driver's seat for him heading into the 28th. So I don't have a crystal ball in for LeBlanc right now. I still want to do a little bit more research. On him, he's, he seems a little bit more up in the air than Jackson, who I think is headed towards Florida. I think there's still a chance LeBlanc of veer and wind up in a different direction. But I like Oklahoma for LeBlanc and Florida for Jackson with the way things are right now. One of the more fascinating recruitments this spring to follow has been Carmelo Taylor, just an absolute burner down in Virginia, captured state championships in the 100 and 200 meter, um, and has really put himself on the radar as a pretty coveted commodity commodity at the receiver position. He also made a trip to Happy Valley uh, in June for an official visit. He's got a top group, Penn State, South Carolina, Maryland, West Virginia on that list. I should also say Virginia Tech in that group as well. So look, there's some schools he's visited. This is a guy who popped up on the radar really late, didn't really pick up the offers until May and June. And now he's got a decision to make, and it's going to be coming uh, in just a matter of weeks. Yeah, July 25th is Taylor's commitment date now. And, you know, th this recruitment actually seemed like originally it was going to play out into the fall. Just coming out of his Penn State official visit it seemed like there was still a lot of learning to do on both sides, and it, it felt like that was the case with other schools involved in Taylor's recruitment. But something had to have changed, and now he's leaning towards the 25th. And – it's kind of tough to say where Penn State stands right now. He's kind of a recruitment I'm still trying to gather intel on before I go on record saying where I think he's going to land. I know Virginia Tech feels good about Taylor. I know they like their chances of keeping him home, but there, there are other factors there as well that they're working through. So, yeah, it, it's an interesting one. And he came on the radar so mm -hmm. I, I guess you could say late in the cycle. I mean, he was, he was, he was a spring riser. You know, he's – his track times really caught a lot of people's eye, and then they start watching the tape, and they realize, hey, this kid can really play. That speed is going to be there at wideout. So, yeah, that's going to be one that I'm working hard to try and figure out what the direction is going to be heading into the 25th. So definitely keep an eye on lines 24-7 for that. It's going to be a, it's going to be a process figuring that one out.
Taylor out of uh, Roanoke, Virginia. He made his uh, debut in 24-7 sports rankings at number 48 overall among wide receivers. So certainly a lot of respect from the rankings council considering he went from on rank to a top 50 player at his position. Look, I, I think with a few of those names we just mentioned and kind of bringing them up to speed, uh, may have bummed out some listeners. So let's focus on some positives. You mentioned Rojas pushing that announcement date back and still feeling like that one's in a good spot for Penn State. Treyon Webb. Uh, you mentioned Evan Link. Let's not gloss over that. Evan Link. Uh, this is one that you talk about keeping it close to the vest, hard to get a read on from the outside. He fits that mold. Him, Stanton Ramil, who was also on campus in June, and then Nikhil Bertrand, who put Penn State in the top six after not putting Penn State in his top ten. In between those lists, he did make the campus. So, look, three offensive linemen, things brewing in all directions with those guys. Tell me a little bit about uh, – take it wherever you'd like with all three. Yes, I might as well just start with Link since at the end of the day, he's the biggest fish on the board right now in terms of the offensive line recruiting. So I like where Penn State is heading in that recruitment right now. If it's going to come down to Penn State and Stanford, Stanford got the official visit on the 24th. I've been saying it for a while. If it's a Penn State-Stanford battle, I like Penn State's chances. You know, there's just Penn State has a lot to offer Link both on and off the field. So while Stanford could offer that elite academic, you know, the prowess that they have out there, there's also plenty of appeal on Penn State's end on that side as well. So it's not like, you know, he'd be taking a huge step down given what he wants to major in. So Link is a guy, I believe he, he's supposed to announce this month. Again, like I said, we hear that he's supposed to, but he's kept things so close to the vest. You know, you, you just never know. Okay, could push his commitment back and we don't even, you know. So we'll be keeping an eye on Link. I like the crystal ball pick for him right now. Threw it in there for a reason, obviously. But Bertrand, yeah, so – I think he's going to be one we're watching until the fall. Like you said, he put Penn State in the top six after not even making it into the top ten. That inclusion in the top six comes after he made it to campus for an unofficial visit, and that relationship continued to build. That was uh, that was his first time on campus, I believe, since he picked up the offer. Yeah, that was his first time on campus since picking up the offer. So he had a lot to learn, a lot of relationships to build with the staff. That was a good trip for him, all-around productive. We'll see if he makes it back during the fall. But, yeah, Penn State in that top six. And then Ramil, you know, there's a there's a lot of intrigue in Ramil's recruitment for a couple of reasons to me. One, he's a, he has family in Binghamton in upstate New York. So he went down to Alabama just to play ball because of the whole COVID situation that happened with New York not having a fall season at that time. So he goes down to Thompson, but this is a guy with plenty of Northeast ties. So him going to Penn State, he's a big family guy, and he would have people close to him. So that looms large. But with that being said, I know Michigan State had a really good official visit with him. Tennessee feels really good. Penn State's right there. But I think right now I'd say Michigan and Tennessee are probably the two to beat. I think they have the strongest in with him at this point in his recruitment. Now, Penn State's offensive line class, of course, led by the nation's number one interior offensive line prospect in Alice Birchmeyer, the number one player in the state of Pennsylvania by our assessment, and the number seven overall offensive tackle, Jaden Williams. Uh, those are the two headliners of that group as it continues to grow. you got Anthony Donka on board as well, of course. But it, it's a group that we talked about before, pushing to maybe five guys, still kind of looking in that ballpark. Names are out there. We'll continue to monitor it. Tyler, you've done a great job. We'll talk to you real soon. And I just want to put it out there next week. I'm away. I'm taking a little bit of a vacation time, just me and the baby for a trip to my hometown. And I think you're going to step up with a really strong show that people are going to like here. So I just want to tease that, but it's going to be recruiting heavy, heavy midsummer show. And uh, maybe, maybe a guest or two are going to pop up with you. Yeah, it should be a good one. I'm looking forward to it. I think you guys are going to like it. I'm excited for it. We'll be right back on the Lions 24 seven podcast. Good stuff from Tyler Calvaruso. Make sure you're following his coverage at Lions 24-7. Uh, he's got a, a story up just yesterday as well about a new offensive line target out of Hawaii who has a lot of interest in the Nittany Lions and, and wants to build a relationship with the staff. Uh, just a kind of an example of what we got brewing on the site right now. Uh, let's head over to Daniel Gallon because he has had plenty of stuff up on the site, including his recent series on the top positional players that Penn State will face in 2022. We're going to take a long look at running backs on the schedule for the Nittany Lions in just a bit, but we kind of buried the lead in some ways. When there's a commitment and we haven't spoken about it yet, we've got to lead off the show here, and so we had Tyler do that. But while it was away, uh, a couple teams from Southern California decided they'd like to play football in some cold weather. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, quite the twist for, uh, I, was that Thursday afternoon at this point? Like it I did not see that common ended. Uh, it kind of it, it threw things uh, a little little off kilter, made things uh, a little bit more exciting than you're expecting on June 30th. 
Yeah, so Southern Cal and UCLA, uh, you know, blockbuster kind of move, uh, expected to join the Big Ten by 2024. So uh, it's going to obviously shake things up. The Big Ten right now at 14 teams. Everybody is scrambling across the Power Five Conference to position themselves to be college football playoff viable moving forward into the future. The Big Ten certainly in a good spot. The Pac-12 bleeding programs that they have counted on in the past. We'll see if that continues. Your general reaction to USC, UCLA, and what their inclusion could mean. And by the way, I just want to put this out there. According to a report from the LA Times, not really expecting some kind of Pied Piper situation from Pac-12 to the Big Ten with a bunch of teams following the Brewers and Trojans. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing we have to do is kind of uh, stake our moment in time where things stand right now. It's 128 on Wednesday, July 6th. So if you listen to this in a couple of days while you're mowing the lawn or on a little holiday road trip, uh, things might might have changed uh, a lot by the time we get there. But yeah, I mean, I think that it was very surprising. I think that it makes sense from USC and UCLA's perspective. Um, in terms of you have to secure your future. Um, you have to, you know, kind of things are really shifting right now. We saw with Oklahoma and Texas moving to the SEC last year, uh, playoff access, the Pac-12 has had it, its issues being a little bit down uh, in the playoff era outside of uh, a couple of those Oregon teams. Um, so I think that this is mostly UCLA, USC trying to get their seats at the table. Obviously, musical chairs is a good analogy here. Uh, and we've kind of already you can already kind of speculate on which schools might be left uh, without a seat at the table. Uh, if you look at Washington State, Oregon State, um, some of those maybe lower tier uh, Pac-12 schools. But, yeah, I mean, I was very surprised by it. Uh, you know, as someone who was in college uh, when his school did realignment, um, I think that I was you know, it's the th- type of thing where I remember I remember the day Maryland did its realignment, November 2012. Uh, there's a couple rumors here. And then it was kind of like this with uh, uh, with with UCLA and USC, where you kind of get that one report and everyone's like, wait, what? And then it breaks big announcement press conference. And it's like, well, this is it. And, yeah, I think that I understood right away, like the year before November tw- or in fall 2011, I remember interviewing Uh, athletes at the dining hall from the water polo team after they found out their team was getting cut Uh, i covered the last water polo match uh at maryland for the student newspaper and you kind of knew uh what the going to the big 10 was doing it was you know stopping the bleeding uh making these programs financially solvent and then there was a report yesterday from the la times that ucla was going to have to cut sports um that they were in debt and that this is kind of a lifeline for their athletic department. So, you know, they kind of did it the inverse of Maryland where they got the lifeline before they had to cut sports. Uh, but the whole situation seems pretty familiar to me. And I think that in the way that college athletics change, um, you know, I think that I'm someone who's, who's young enough where I just kind of, I'm not totally wed to tradition, tra- to tradition. I wasn't necessarily raised in a super heavy college athletics household. So I was kind of like, yeah, like I, I don't like it necessarily aesthetically. I mean, I miss those Maryland Duke basketball games, Maryland UN, even Maryland UNC football. But from the very practical standpoint of what it means for universities and what it means for teams, what it means for for athletes in terms of having a place to kind of be, you know, I, I totally get it. I think it's the latest sign that right now it's clearly the Big Ten and the SEC pushing to the forefront of whatever is happening. Um, It's hard to know exactly what is going to happen. It's hard to understand what conferences might go by the wayside and no longer be part of that power equation or what conferences might need to merge. Right now it feels like the Pac-12 won't be very viable on its own in that kind of conversation, although they have plenty of big-time programs still out there. Um, You you hear that the Big 12 is going to try to make some major moves and maybe try to, 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 to plunder a little bit or maybe try to talk about merging a little bit with the Pac-12. And uh, look, I, I, you got some big fish in the ACC pond still. That that you know, it wouldn't surprise me if we hear some kind of thunderous movement with a team like a Clemson or a Florida State here in the next year. I remember last year we were at Big Ten Media Days and Oklahoma and Texas are all of a sudden heading to the SEC and everyone's talking about the SEC during Big Ten Media Days. So, hey, man, this is it's not necessarily a surprise to get slapped in the face by news like this. 
But from a Penn State perspective, really quickly, you, you did a, uh, you know, they're not going to lose anything. The Pac-12 has got to figure out what they're losing. Um, I think what we got to see from a Big Ten perspective is what the heck are you going to do with divisions? It's not a very popular um, topic already uh, for, for fans uh, here at Penn State and really across the conference in many ways. Um, how does this shake things up? Where do they go from here? UCLA, Penn State have played six times. All of those games were in the 1960s. And then, of course, USC and, uh, and Penn State most recently played in that epic uh, Rose Bowl matchup. Saquon Barkley went bonkers. Sam Darnold made himself a lot of money. Uh, the Trojans lead the series all time, 6-4 to four over the Nittany Lions. That was a 52-49 to 49 game back in the Rose Bowl. And I guess we have to look at what comes next. I mean, how many teams could the Big Ten add? As you said, we're both uh, products of a couple transplanted teams into the Big Ten, and some people maybe still scoff at, at their membership, but they're in. There's going to be other programs, a lot of debate, and I think the one that continues to pop up in Big Ten circles and because of the region and because of the notoriety are the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, and they've been on this kind of quasi, we're sort of in a conference, but we're really not, and we still love our independence mode. You just wonder as they look around and assess things, how strongly do they feel about that independent flair that they've always had and the money that comes with it? And how strongly do they feel about we've got to make sure we're on a boat that can get us to the national college football playoff. But to this point really hasn't been much sign that, that people are going to say Notre Dame needs to be left to the side in these playoff conversations. Yeah, I think Notre Dame is, is the next domino to drop. Obviously, there's a lot of chatter about Oregon and Washington. Uh, when you look at the the Pac-12 pecking order, they're kind of the, I think, the next two programs, and especially with Washington having that population center in Seattle. But I saw someone make the the point on Twitter today that if if you if USC and UCLA wanted Oregon and Washington to come along with them, or if the Big Ten wanted them in, they probably they've all held in. hands and skipped in together, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think that we're I think we're waiting to see uh, what Notre Dame does and whether that is you know in six hours or six months or you know two years. Um, I think that that's kind of the the next domino to fall. Um, I think that the Big Ten, uh, you know, it, I feel like it, it tries to be pretty pragmatic, um, especially you know here and there. Um, and I think that this is kind of the scenario where it's you know I think standing pat, seeing what the ripples are, um, and then going from there. But I think Notre Dame would be the the next one to come in, um, which would be really interesting, I think, even beyond the um, uh, even beyond the football perspective. I think that what they have in terms of their non-revenue sports, I think, would be really interesting to add to the Big Ten. Um, they've had some success there uh, with some of their teams and I think that that could raise the level um, of, of some, you know, men's lacrosse, uh, men's soccer. Those are two that stand out uh, to me uh, since when I was also in college, we overlapped with Notre Dame uh, having its partnership uh, with the ACC when Maryland was there for a year. So I think that that's another thing with U UCLA and USC coming in is that you look at all of those national championships uh, that, that they boast. I think both have more than 100 uh, to their credit. And a lot of those are in the, the quote unquote non-revenue sports. And the Big Ten has some has some powerhouses in that area. And I think that in terms of competition in the conference, even if you look beyond uh, football, which is where I think most of us are going to look, most of us are thinking about maybe a little men's basketball. Um, I think it adds a lot uh, in terms of competitiveness uh, up and down the conference. And I guess it's fun to imagine, uh, you know, we're used to going to East Lansing, Ann Arbor, Piscataway in mid late November. It's fun to imagine getting on a plane to, to Los Angeles in late November. It's also fun to think about uh, you know, USC playing in a blizzard in November in, in Big Ten territory. It's just it, this is the new reality. And, and this is a, a prime example of where you're seeing kind of these juxtaposed realities suddenly slam together for the sake of. Let's make a bunch of money together. And it should work out for both parties, I think. And just really quickly, because you do cover basketball and, and you're pretty ingrained with that as well. USC, UCLA, what do they do? It's already a highly respected conference in the Big Ten. Penn State trying to climb that ladder. When we look at a couple of years ahead, we'll see what other kind of influx there is. But what do these two basketball programs impact the conference? Yeah, I mean, we saw UCLA uh, in the Final Four just a couple of years ago. Um, they have a very... Yeah, it's a very strong program. Obviously, uh, I, I saw the Big Ten Network graphics showing that all of a sudden there's all these old UCLA basketball titles that you can kind of start counting, uh, you know, when you talk about Big Ten uh, basketball history. Um, but I think that both of those programs are are pretty, they're, they're interesting programs in terms of they've had their downs, they've had their ups. 
Uh, Andy Enfield seems to be building things a little bit uh, out at USC. They've they've had some good highs. Uh, he's also interesting because he is an he's an East Coast guy uh, with some ties out here. Um, you know, obviously he made his name for Dunk City at Florida Gulf Coast, but I think both USC and UCLA they they raised the competition of, of uh, basketball. They they slot in ahead Penn State ahead of Penn State, and it just makes a couple more uh, I guess a couple more steps to climb uh, when you look at trying to to rise and be competitive in the Big Ten. Yeah, I'm not sure what to make of UCLA's football program, by the way, and I don't know if Chip <laughs> Kelly will will end up in Beaver Stadium coaching that program, but I do know that. A lot of signs pointing towards USC re-emerging. I mean, they've got to do it on the field. They have to get it done, rack up the wins, got to avoid being that entering that Texas cycle where you keep hiring. I mean, they're kind of in that Texas cycle. They, they've been hand-in-hand hand with it in a lot of ways. But if USC has it really rolling in 2024, it's a scary proposition for the rest of the Big Ten. And also, you want to know, is the Big Ten going to make the Trojans play the Buckeyes and the Wolverines and the Spartans and the Nittany Lions in the same year every year? What What is their path going to look like? It's going to be a lot of miles long. Um, really curious about that. But I think the USC one in particular, uh, if, if, if it pans out and they've invested a lot in that program, you could be talking about a team that is really well ranked inside the top five, certainly inside the top 10 come 2024. And that would be a major addition to the conference and the landscape to get to the conference championship game. Uh, Daniel, uh, you were back on the field, uh, the practice field for Penn State last Thursday, um, along with Mark Brennan, uh, Lions 24-7 in attendance for Lift for Life, which was fantastic to see back in person for the first time in a few years. Um, I'm not going to pretend that I had takeaways because I was on a plane out to Colorado when you were covering this event. But what stood out to you? And I guess we got to headline it with the obvious positive impact that Penn State's making on the community. Definitely. I talked to Chris Stoll for a while, who's, who's been the president of Uplifting Athletes for, for the past couple of years uh, and will be again. Uh, he has a family connection uh, to the rare disease community. And he said that it was really exciting to, to be back out there because this is when the Penn State football players get a chance to be part of the community. Uh, it's an interaction with fans where they're not in their shoulder pads. They're not in their helmets. Uh, they can kind of be seen as as humans uh, a little bit. There's no bit. scoreboard. There's no scoreboard. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, you know, they're still very large, uh, but, you know, they're they're humans. They're just like the people who are, you know, watching from the bleachers on the other side of the rope. And Stoll said that that was something that, that he was really excited uh, to be back out there for. Um, so it was, you know, it was a very nice day. It was a, a nice warm evening. Um, there's a good crowd there, and I think that you got to see a lot of the the freshmen, a lot of the newcomers out and about, and it looked like uh, that you know, the Nittany Lions were having a, a really, really nice time out there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, it's a little bit of a positional competition out there in terms of not just lifting, but raising the money, and, and it's kind of great that, that you get the competitive edge involved there with these guys, and, and it's all going to a great cause. Um, you had a chance to catch up with one of the leaders of this team at a, at a really – interesting position because it's it's in flux and you wrote about the defensive end group and Penn State's going to be sending some new faces off the edge this year with a new defensive coordinator and not just new to the program but new as in weren't around last year we talked about Adiza Isaac fitting that bill but Damian Robinson transferring in denied and Sutton making that move what is the word from Tarburton as he should have a pretty good handle on things in there yeah, I talked to Nick Tarburton for a while uh, and kind of went went through the depth chart a little bit uh, with him. And obviously, we're, we talked a lot about Deny Dennis Sutton and Chop Robinson, and he called both of them dynamic uh, in terms of what they can do. Um, obviously, we saw uh, Deny Dennis Sutton walking around um, out there, and I think we've seen him at, at some of the seven on seven and, and camp stuff too. And he looks the part of a division one FBS, big 10, whatever you, you know, whatever level you want defensive end, you can see physically why he was a five-star recruit, why Alabama and Georgia and all those other schools were involved in his recruitment and, and why this was such a big win for Penn state. We need to see him on the field and we need to see those skills in action. But in terms of just kind of, I guess, I guess the eye test more or less, he looks the part and to get, someone like Nick Tarburton, who's a fifth-year senior, who's been around, uh, who saw Odafe Owe, Shaka Tony, uh, the rest of these defensive ends that have come through Penn State, and to for him to kind of highlight Dennis Sutton as someone who is dynamic and, and can do things off the edge, I think that bodes really well. Uh, and then putting Chop Robinson in that same boat. Uh, I think that this Penn State defensive end group, uh, you saw that they lost in terms of Jesse, Jesse Lucchetto leaving, uh, and then Arnold Abichetti, who 
you know, had most of their production last year. Those are two big losses. Um, but I think getting Adisa Isaac back and then getting Chop Robinson, getting denied Dennis Sutton, you've really kind of flipped this room uh, and put it in a really good spot moving forward. And anything else uh, in terms of about a month away from seeing this team on the practice field, we'll get it. We'll get a chance to get back out there uh, in a few weeks for, for some prospect evaluation and, and camps. But in terms of this 2022 Penn State roster, anything else stick out to you when, when you got a chance to just kind of, you know, navigate the field a little bit? I mean, a lot of it, you're, you're looking at the freshmen and, and sizing them up a little bit. And I think the first time we really got a good look at some of these guys was back uh, in February, I think, uh, at the Thon uh, day. And now this is, you know, this is five, almost five months later. Uh, you can see the, the physical change that some of them have gone through. And then just kind of seeing some of the new guys for the first time, uh, seeing Malik McNeil, uh, who definitely is six seven, and I think listed at three thirty five or three fifty five. Um, he is a, a very large man. Um, and then seeing Vega Ioni, um, who I know that you're you're pretty high on. We got our our first look at him, um, and he looks like someone a very stout, very thick guy um, who you can kind of imagine working his way uh, up the depth chart. Um, over the next you know, next couple months, next couple of years. So I think that was kind of the, the big takeaway is kind of you know, what uh, Crystal said. You get to see these guys without helmets on. You get to, um, you know, kind of learn some faces and, and see the guys that, um, you know, so the freshmen, we're not going to get to talk to them for a little while, but you get to see them, you know, being out and about, interacting with each other, interacting with their older teammates, interacting with kids, playing some cornhole, uh, helping kids throw balls through tires. It was, it was just really nice and just kind of nice to see them in, in a different environment. Yeah, an important step forward, I would say, for program acclimation for a lot of the younger players. You could say that about those who experienced Thon for the winter, but that was a, a, you know just a relatively small percentage of the freshman class. So you know, the guys who have come on board since then, pretty important moment for them. And uh, moving ahead now, as I said, just about a month away from training camp. And, and with that in mind, we start to take a peek toward the 2022 football schedule, which opens up September 1st, Thursday night at Purdue. We started things off on the podcast here, going through a series last week with Daniel breaking down the top five quarterbacks Penn State will face. And we'll continue to work our way through this conversation into training camp. But let's look at running backs now, because uh, look, we talked about a lot of it with Penn State and what they've got cooking in the running back room. Uh, elsewhere across the Big Ten, there's a lot of talent. And then beyond the conference, as you note here, there's some serious, seriously talented players that Penn State is going to encounter. Let's start with number five. We'll work our way through and then talk about who you may have left off the list. But we go to Michigan, and Blake Corum is the fifth guy on this list for you. Yeah, Penn State didn't get to see Blake Corum last year because he's dealing with an inj injury. So we saw a lot of Hassan Haskins, which was, I think, I think that was maybe one of the more impressive individual performances. Uh, that we saw last year, especially through the passing game. Uh, I think he had a couple really big catches in that game that that really helped Michigan uh, get past Penn State. But Corum is someone I'm excited to see in that kind of full-time role. Uh, a little bit smaller, I think he's listed at 5'8", but he's listed at over 200 pounds. Uh, really hard-nosed runner, and he came out of a, a program uh, at St. Francis in Baltimore that uh, Michigan has a lot of connections to um, and that they've recruited very well. So he was someone that that when he came in, you kind of knew um, he kind of knew what what he needed to do, what he was going to be in for. And, and I think that has showed early in his career. Yeah, Corum, uh, really a hot start last year. I think he had three 100-plus yard games in September, um, ended up going for 11 touchdowns on the season, almost seven yards per carry. I'm glad you noted that he missed that Penn State game uh, as we were kind of waiting into pregame warm-ups to see if he would play because someone that Nittany Lions fans did not see against this defense last year. Uh, we'll roll down this list a little bit more here, and, and we work our way down to four. And another guy who was missing for, for much of the season last year, unfortunately, he, he was rumbling against Ohio State early in that contest, the Muhammad Ibrahim from Minnesota. And, and we'll get a look at this uh, Golden Gophers offense with Kirk Shiraka and Tanner Morgan. But something tells me if they're going to get it rolling again up there in Minneapolis, Ibrahim's going to be a central figure as he works his way back from an injury. He's someone that I'm really excited to see play. Um, I remember in, during 2020, uh, the way that the, the schedule fell, uh, I ended up seeing a lot of Minnesota uh, football for one reason or another and he was really <laughs> impressive uh, he's just a, a really hard-nosed runner uh, and in that scheme they give him a lot of opportunities and, and he takes advantage of it I mean I think that when he got hit, hurt in that Ohio State game it was his third he was up to 30 carries 
um, mm-hmm. and 163 yards, I think. So he's someone that can really get it going. Obviously, coming back from an Achilles injury, you, it's now it's a little bit less uncertain, but I think overall you're still not completely sure how someone is going to come back from that. But I think given where this game falls in the schedule, we'll, we'll have a really good idea. Uh, and he's someone who could have really hit his stride um, by the time I think October 22nd rolls around and he comes to Minnesota with Kirk Shiraka, with Tanner Morgan, with PJ Fleck. Daniel, uh, he's been limited because of the COVID season and because of the injury last year. But here are the numbers. The last eight games, so this is back to 2020 and including that opener last year, uh, here are his totals for carries. Uh, He's got 26, 41, 30, 33, 25, 20, 26. And then, as you mentioned, last year in the season opener before his injury, 30 carries against the Ohio State Buckeyes, an absolute workhorse and a guy that they're going to lean on again uh, if they want to get things situated for Tanner Morgan to flourish once again for, for Kirk Shiraka. Number three takes us out of the Big Ten Conference. And you'll mention this when we when we were ranking the importance of these games a few weeks ago. Look, Central Michigan is not near the top of that list of rankings of importance, but it's a nine win team in 2021. They've got a, a coach who was down with the Florida Gators a few years back and he's got some pedigree and they've got a running back in Lou Nichols, the third who can give you some fits. Yeah, he's the, he was FBS's leading rusher last year, uh, 1,848 yards on 341 carries uh, also 338 yards on 40 catches through the air. So this was something where when you get into these Mac teams, uh, and, and kind of looking at their rosters, trying to learn them a little bit uh, and making these lists, you know, your head always goes to Ohio State, Michigan, uh, you know, the, the conference schedule and, and even Auburn. But I was scrolling through the, the all Mac teams from last year and, you know, oh, Penn State has the, the Mac offensive player of the year uh, on their schedule. And <laughs> I thought that that was that was pretty notable. Um, obviously what Penn State has up front is going to be a little bit different than what Lou Nichols saw last year. Um, in the Mac, um, I forget exactly what his his non-conference uh, totals were, but they, you know, he obviously took a dip uh, when the competition got better. But I think that that's something where when you go into these games, that's going to be the, the, the that last Saturday in September. Sometimes that at the end of the non-conference schedule, you're really looking forward to the calendar to flip to October, uh, get into Big Ten play, really get rolling. Um, and I think that this is someone who can kind of get your attention and, and make things interesting. Yeah, he did go up against LSU last year on the road in Baton Rouge, 12 carries, 18 yards. Obviously, he was a focal point for the Tigers defense, but also faced an SEC squad uh, at Missouri, 19 carries, 135 yards, added 40 yards as a receiver. And then against Washington State um, in a bowl matchup late in the year, 30 carries, 138 yards, uh, added another 40 as a receiver. So it's not like he went to Power 5 and got shut down across the board. He went down to Baton Rouge and had himself a bad day. It's happened before, uh, but <laughs> someone we'll, we'll, we'll get to see in Beaver Stadium in September. Number two on this list is where you're going to, you got a pretty emphatic, wait, what? Are you sure you had this thing correctly ordered? And then you said, hey, eyeball test, I get to use it. And this is where we remind people, very unscientific method. And Travion Henderson is number two. Yeah, I think that's the disclaimer that goes with all of this is this is very unscientific. And especially once we got to the tight ends, the offensive linemen, and especially on the defensive side of the ball, um, it's we're you know we're we're taking some liberties in there and that's what i did here Uh, i put travion henderson at number two obviously you looked at what he did last year and it was really really impressive he was really fun to watch but at the same time you you kind of ding him a little bit for for the production side of things where um i think do i have it in here where it was uh yeah you had five games last year with fewer than 10 carries that's a product of Ohio state just boat racing all these teams and, and with those wide receivers that they had. Um, but I thought that Penn state did a really nice job against him uh, when they played uh, at the horseshoe at the en- end of October last year, I felt like they really bottled him up and obviously he got his, he broke that big one um, that really helped swing the game. But in terms of looking at him, I thought Penn state played him very nicely. Um, and I think that, you know, maybe at the end of this year, he is the best running back that Penn State faced. But in terms of you know looking at what I saw last year, what I'm looking forward to seeing this year, I, I put him in at number two and, and what was somebody else at number one. 
Yeah, well, we'll get to him right now, and then we can talk about those two real quick. And it's Tank Bigsby, who we saw up in Beaver Stadium last year. He went for 102 yards on 23 carries against the Nittany Lions, one catch for one yard, uh, tacked on there as well. Uh, 18 was his long. He talked about Henderson uh, going for a big clip against Penn State, picking up a lot of that 150-plus yards on 28 carries. For Bigsby, it was more of four yards, four yards, three yards, five yards, and in a lot of ways – he made sure that Auburn was able to, to ball control and, and make sure that game was down to the wire. You've got him at number one. I disagree. I, I think Henderson just has too much game-changing talent in all facets of the game. I think he can touch the ball anywhere on the field and go the distance. I don't really feel that way about Bigsby, although I think Bigsby is more of a battering ram that Penn State's going to have to come up with a solution to on a potentially very hot day down in Auburn in September. But make your case here for Tank Bigsby as the top running back the Nittany Lions will face in 2022. I just really felt last year in terms of looking back at that whiteout game and, and rewatching parts of it that if Tank Tank Bigsby gets up to 27, 28 carries, I really felt like that Auburn had a, a really good chance to win that game, uh, an even better chance than, than they did given how close it was. Uh, like you said, it felt like that every time he was touching the ball, he was falling forward, he was breaking tackles, it was taking two, three guys uh, to bring him down and I really felt like in terms of watching Travion Henderson for most of that game last October, where you kind of had that in the back of your mind where, okay, is this going to be the 50 yarder? Is this going to be the 60 yarder now? But there was a lot of those just stacking him up at the line. And that was obviously a, a defensive line that had just been gashed by Illinois a couple weeks earlier uh, had when it was without PJ Mustafer at that point in the year. Um, I just felt like, maybe the way that Penn State played Travion Henderson uh, impressed me a little bit more than the way that they played against Tank Bigsby. And I kind of use that, you know, that eye test there, this very uh, untrained eye uh, in terms of moving Tank Bigsby to number one. And I think that obviously, in fact, we've talked about this a little bit before. It's an SEC team. There's a little bit more novelty. It's someone that you don't typically see. Um, and I think given some of the what the conditions are going to be like in that game uh, in Alabama on the third Saturday in September. Uh, I think that Bigsby is someone who is going to be uh, a game changer where you look at that Ohio state, uh, Ohio state roster going into that game. I'm thinking a little bit more about Jackson, Jackson Smith and Jigba uh, and CJ Stroud necessarily than Travion Henderson. So you can go either way. I don't really think that there's a, a right answer, or wrong answer here, but I want to take tank Bigsby uh, at number one. Yeah, I think and you're going very much on this. this is an individual discussion because you talk about the wide receiver depth at Ohio State. Auburn fired their wide receivers coach after the Penn State game, I think, a week or two later. That is how like different those situations were in terms of supporting talent, quarterback talent versus quarterback talent. Bigsby is going to have to do a lot on his own, or he did have to do a lot on his own down the stretch last year. And I just kind of went through a little bit here and, and kind of looked at his games at LSU, nine carries, 27 yards against Georgia, 10 carries, 28 yards uh, against Arkansas, 18 carries, 68 yards against Mississippi State, 16 carries, 41 yards. And this is all happening while Penn State is uh, while Auburn is, is tanking down the stretch and they can't really generate much offensively. Uh, but to me, uh, I just need to see a little bit more uh, kind of game by game from Tank Bigsby, uh, even when opponents like Penn State will be are glued in on him and zeroed in on him because if opponents aren't zeroed in on uh, Trayvon Henderson look out because he could go off for 200 total yards and three touchdowns on any given Saturday um, but hey it's fun to have that debate it's fun to have that and, and we'll get a chance to see both of these guys as long as they're healthy do battle with the Penn State defense here in the coming months um, our five-star mailbag question is how we're going to wrap up this show and it's going to keep us on the subject of rushers and, and Penn State has a few of them so it's it's a fairly good question here at this stage of the calendar Plenty can change in preseason camp, but based on where things stand now, who do you expect to lead Penn State in rushing yards? Daniel, I'll take this one first because I, I was of the opinion coming out of last season that I felt like Kevon Lee, as long as he stayed, and once we learned he was staying on campus and he wasn't going to be in the transfer portal, kind of felt like as long as he had a good offseason and sound like he's had that, he was going to come out of this as the guy who would probably be the answer to this question. But then Nick Singleton showed up. People started whispering about him. Then he lifted some weights and people started talking about him. And then he started sprinting and people started yelling about him. Then he put on pads and had spring ball and people started screaming about him. And we still got preseason camp ahead of us. And he's got this nice new NIL deal. So I'm going to lean towards the shiny new toy in the backfield for Penn State and say Nick Singleton ends up leading the team in rushing yards. 
but I think it still could be Kevon Lee leading the team in rushing yards through September. I just feel like at the end of the day, if the if what we see as the athletic and, and prospect profile pans out over the course of 12, 13 games, I think by the end of this, Nick Singleton is going to be the leading rusher for the Nindy Lions. I'm going to agree with you there. Uh, and I think that given the depth that Penn State has at the position, uh, given how Jalen Sider likes to rotate running backs, uh, as we've seen a lot, um, it won't take too many yards, I don't think, to, to lead. 800, or so, 800 might do it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Kevon Lee had 530 last year, uh, 438 in the pandemic season, and, and that, that was enough to lead Penn State. So I think that there could be a situation where Nick Singleton doesn't have the most carries uh, of a Penn State running back, but he's still able to lead them in rushing uh, based on how explosive he is, those physical traits, um, and the fact that he, you know, if he can get to, to 700 yards, uh, then he's probably going to lead the team in rushing. So I think Singleton is the, I think he's the, maybe the more exciting choice. Uh, I think that we're going to see a lot of Kevon Lee, especially early, like you said. Uh, maybe that gives him the chance to put up some yards against Ohio and Central Michigan uh, to pad things out a little bit. But I think when all is said and done, Nick Singleton will be be on top given what we've heard uh, and what we what we saw before he got here and, and what we've heard since he's been here. I think that that arrow is pointing uh, strongly in that direction. It's just such a timely addition coming off of what that rushing game dealt with last year and adding the top running back in the country, a guy who's from your home state and being able to do that. Now you got to see it come together on the field and a lot to prove for this ground game as we have talked repeatedly about for the past 10 months or so. But uh, looking ahead, uh, we, we will, you know, Navigate it on a week-by-week basis, and we'll hear who's shining in practice. And at the end of the day, that Thursday night when the lights come on in Purdue, it's going to be quite the opening setting for Nick Singleton whenever he does enter the matchup. Hey, we really appreciate your uh, insight here, as always, Daniel. You talked about running backs today and ranking them. Just want to let people know up on the site, lines247.com. On Wednesday, you had the top five linebackers uh, Penn State's going to be dealing with here on the 2022 schedule. So you're in the defense. We're, we're, we're a little bit off the pace here on the podcast, but we'll continue talking our way through it as the season gets closer and closer. Always appreciate when you join us here on the podcast, buddy. Thanks for having me, Tyler. All right. Daniel Gallen, Tyler Calvaruso, really proud and happy to be working with these guys now for a couple months. Uh, continue to look forward to a bunch of recruiting information as the July uh, unfolds. And, and, and this is a July where maybe not like last year, where it felt like every day was a commitment. Saw a lot of, uh, of movement in June, but as Tyler alluded to, it can't really take your eye off of this thing for too long in the coming weeks. We'll be tracking it all lines 247com Tyler has the targets to watch in July piece up on Tuesday. Go find that one for our VIP subscribers. Up, updated detail on, on some of these guys who have commitments set or could be announcing their commitments in the coming weeks. For those two guests and for our producer, Lance Glenn, I'm Tyler Donahue. Stay tuned next week for a recruiting-centric show hosted by Tyler Calvaruzzo. I'm headed to the beach with the baby. Talk to you real soon on the Lions 24-7 podcast.